0: This episode of the Living Yoga Show was brought to you by the Living Yoga Society's Outreach Project, dedicated to serving the community and providing yoga and spiritual life coaching to people in deep life-changing experiences, including PTSD, cancer, anxiety, depression, birth, and end-of-life transitions. To add your heartbeat to this outreach project, go to livingyogasociety.org donate, and follow the link to patreon.com or PayPal.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Living Yoga Show. I'm Shivani, and together with my co-host Param Jodi, we will explore the teachings of yoga, its techniques, philosophy, and take a look at how it can be applied to our everyday life. So, here we go. Hi, and welcome to The Living Yoga Show. My name is Shivani, and today I'm here with our resident, Rutanjaya.
0: Hello. How's it Good going? I'm well. Yeah. A bit of a quiet morning. It's nice because it rains today for the first time since I've been here, which is about two weeks.
1: Right. It is lovely to finally get some rain. So, today we wanted to talk about the Yamas. Remember in. I think it was the second podcast we did, Modern Yoga, Ancient Roots, and we talked about the eight limbs of yoga from Patanjali, and we committed to doing one podcast per limb, and this is going to be the podcast on the Yamas.
0: Right on. We learned a little bit about the Yamas in the 200-hour yoga teacher training we did here three years ago.
1: Three years ago, yes. So it'll be
0: a bit of a refresher for me.
1: Fantastic. So the Yamas are about universal morality, right? So they're about how we interact with the outside world. And they're made up of five different aspects. The first one is Ahimsa. So when I say Ahimsa to you, what do you think of?
0: Well, I guess I know the direct translation, which is nonviolence. But what first and foremost comes to mind is nonviolence against and towards other humans as well as towards other living creatures like animals and so on.
1: Exactly. But nonviolence, it's kind of nuanced, isn't it? Swami Shivananda stated that all the yamas and niyamas, so personal conduct and universal morality, have been put in place just so that we can fully understand and embody ahimsa or nonviolence. My plan is to wait for the beautiful soul, uh, Salvatore Zambido, who's the head of the Patanjali Institute, to come out of 18 months of silence, to do one podcast just on Ahimsa, because that is an absolute passion of his. So we'll have to stay tuned for that, because it's going to be a few months away. Mm-hmm. But he has said that he will do it. So Ahimsa, it's sometimes put as nonviolence, not causing harm to any creature in thought, word, or action. But, okay, what about you're walking in the city at night and you hear a woman screaming and you walk down this alley and somebody's attacking her and what do you do?
0: Yeah, this is where it gets a little trickier because you see someone doing an act of violence Mm -hmm. or harm against something else or someone else And in order to stop that, you're probably going to have to be violent against that person. But I guess it comes down to the... I guess it would be okay to do violence in order to prevent more violence from happening.
1: Right. So it really comes down to intention.
0: Yeah, exactly. The intention behind the violence is good in this case because you're protecting someone from harm.
1: Right. When I think of nonviolence in terms of right action... I like the term Mm, non-aggression because non-aggression then puts it in terms of what is coming from me. My actions may be forceful. You know, if I see a toddler walking towards a fire, I may grab the toddler by the arm and it may briefly hurt the toddler, but my action is not too aggressive towards the toddler
0: yeah your intention is not to hurt the toddler your intention is to protect the toddler
1: from being hurt yeah so it's the for me and this is this is extremely nuanced there's no right or wrong answer it's it's a lifetime of self-inquiry but for me it's about the intention and the aggressiveness behind the intention. So if, you're, if you come across somebody being attacked in, a, in an alleyway, if you go with the intention of preventing harm, you may have to hold somebody. You may have to punch somebody, right? If they're going to hurt you or hurt somebody else, you may need to knock them out, right? But the intention is not to hurt the person. The intention is to stop
0: What is happening?
1: And sometimes the only way to do that is to push somebody to the ground, right? And if they're flailing on the ground and they whack their head against the ground and hurt themselves, that's not an act of aggression from you. Actually, it's more in defense of the other Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. person—an act of protection over
1: an act of aggression.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. So, you know, those those two sort of examples are you know kind of blatant, but. As we go further and further, it gets really nuanced. And there are some times when I think I am aggressive. You know, I can be quite uh, aggressive, mostly in my tongue, because it's not just yeah. ahimsa in action, it's also ahimsa in word, thought, and deed. And sometimes I am a little bit aggressive, and that's part of my evolution and part of my learning and part of my journey is to weed out those aspects of myself and really look at them honestly and, and humbly and try and choose differently in the moment.
0: Yeah, well said. Um, it's obviously night and day when you look at violent action, it's very easy to see what's violent and what's not, but where it becomes a little bit more difficult mm-hmm. is to look at your thought and look at your word and be honest with yourself if it's if you have aggressive intention. And yeah, that's, that can be very... If you're
1: acting out of frustration. And I know as being a mother.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> I have a very spirited child who is amazing and very, very strong-willed. And I was brought up in a family where you had... It, it was a sign of respect if there was kind of control over... Respect wasn't sort of necessarily... Uh, it, It was earned, but it was implied from day one, right? It wasn't you you respected first and then the respect was earned rather than the respect was earned and then you it was respectful and so aggression is has been a big part of my family karma of how to speak to a child what is okay for a child and sometimes children will push your buttons until you snap, and that's, you know, it's a learning curve.
0: Yeah, and that's a t- totally a great example because in those moments where someone does push your buttons until that snapping point, then that's a good moment to look at yourself and say, oh, man, those words I used were aggressive in nature.
1: Yeah, exactly. Even though in that moment you might feel justified that doesn't mean that it's right. So you have to start catching the the warning signs of snapping earlier and earlier and earlier and shifting the situation before it gets to the snapping point. Totally. And I think that so far has been my biggest lesson in being a parent. Yeah. Yeah, especially with my spirited, beautiful <laughs> child. <laughs> <laughs> so Ahimsa can come down to very small actions like what kind of eggs do you buy at the supermarket
0: i buy the seven dollar dozen because i know that they get to go and peck around outside all day and they aren't confined to a tiny little box and they're fed good grains and they aren't fed hormones and antibiotics
1: oh you know you could buy those exact same chickens from eggs from us for five dollars (laughs) right
0: i do when i'm home when i'm here i I take full advantage of the farm
1: (laughs) But sometimes, you know, like free run. If you actually look out up free run, or if you look up a free range, or um, cage run uh, eggs, and you actually look at the the quality of life that these animals have, you can see that even though you're not perpetuating the quality of you, you are. But if, if you're not directly re- um, instigating the quality of life of those chickens buying those eggs is actually creating permission for the violence. So is that ahimsa?
0: Yeah, food is a great example to look at because there's a definite disconnect. When we go to the grocery store and buy eggs, we don't see that they're being harmed or that they have a really poor quality of life. But when we buy those products, we are allowing those things to continue. So... In my mind, it's ahimsa, or it's or it is violence, sorry.
1: There's an article um, from yogamag.net um, by Swami Om Saraswati, who was actually 13 years at the time that they wrote this. And there's just this little quote in there from uh, about a, a story about a Sufi saint. It says, a good example of the story is a Sufi saint who called his disciples together and said, I have five birds, one for each of you. Take them and kill them in separate places, but no one must see you doing it. When you bring them here, we'll have a feast. Soon, all of the students came back, sooner or later, and they gave explanations as to where they killed the bird and how no one saw them. When the last disciple came and said, I'm sorry, Guruji, I failed you. I could not kill it. Wherever I went, I felt as though someone was watching me. He turned out to be the best disciple. And that's really the teaching that, you know, the divine is. Always watching you, like as humans, where we have this very limited keyhole perception of the third dimension. But there are beings on every level watching and guiding our every move at every moment, which is a little disconcerting when you have sex. But uh, you, you could—it's something you know to, to, to keep in mind when you think nobody is watching you. Somebody, something, some being, an energy, a frequency, a memory—it that action is being recorded. Um a couple of weeks ago, I had to kill my first chicken. We've had chickens here for 3 years. We've had a few chickens die of natural causes, illnesses or or whatever. They just we go to the coop in the morning and there's a dead chicken and so that that's fine. But we got up this that morning and there was a chicken that had prolapsed, so its innards had come out of its butthole and was very distressed. So I had to make this really hard decision as to, is it cruel to put it in a crate with some food and some water and let it bleed to death, slowly, or would it be better to end its life? And it took me about half an hour, three phone calls, a few tears to actually figure out whether I could make a decision to take another being's life. This chicken, who I had named and who I had fed every single day and loved, and I would never wish harm on her, I decided that it must have been very uncomfortable for her to be in that state. And there was no way that I could have healed her or helped her in any way. So I, I did it. And I cried. I chanted. I cried and I chanted and I cried and I chanted. But afterwards, I felt, well, I was sad that she had gone. But I was also, I felt very calm and I felt very grateful that she had not suffered. And it was hard because I... I don't ever want to kill anything. Maybe a mosquito here and there, but I'm not I'm not one. I don't kill ants, I don't kill anything. And to actually consciously decide to help this, the only way I could do it was to say a prayer for her evolution, to thank her for all of the aids she had given us, and to make it as quick and painless as possible. And I did that through offering mantra. So ahimsa, it is extremely nuanced. It's something that it takes. It's a decision moment to moment of what is your intention to do. I'm really pleased you weren't here that day. Check. Why? Because because it was horrible.
0: It yeah, was, it's tough. it was. It was did a Did it horrible. feel like you did the right thing? Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah, I don't back think to, it was to the fair groundwork to, of ahimsa. I mean, would it be more violent to leave the chicken there and suffer? And have more harm done to it, or do you do an act of violence with uh, the intention of, of reducing that person, exactly. reducing that animal's harm?
1: I mean, chickens are a flock animal, right? They yeah. don't like being by themselves, and the only way I could have kept her safe was to keep her in a crate, isolated, and nobody which
0: would have been terrifying for it, anyways. which would have been
1: terrifying for it anyway, because it's used to running around on the farm anywhere it wants it's to go, right, with chickens. a bunch of other chickens. Um, and if I had let her out, the other chickens would have attacked her, which would have also have been horrible. Anyway, shall we move on?
0: Sure. I think <laughs> okay. we covered a him so fairly well. I
1: think we did. So the second yama is satya, or truthfulness. Truthfulness, of course, in part, it's about not telling lies. But to be really truthful and to stick to that truth, even in the face of perceived danger... So if you're perceiving danger, do you suddenly lie to save yourself or do you stand in the truth and not say anything, right? Because it's about also about being able to see the truth behind a situation or an experience, to be able to see why you are in the situation that you're in being able to perceive beyond the third dimension as to the situation that is playing out and why you are here and what is the right action because when you sit when you stand in satya when you stand in truthfulness you can see right action because you can see the truth of it and there's there's no need to fabricate a different story when you can understand what the truth is and of course You know, if you tell the truth and somebody's going to kill you for it, from a yogic perspective, death is not the worst thing that can happen. So what do you think when I say Satya?
0: The main thing that comes to mind is obviously spoken word. It's, yeah, it takes a lot of brain power to always be thinking about what you say. But when you do, (laughs) when you do filter it and think about what you're going to say and make sure that it's truthful, there's definitely a, a purity that comes along with it, and a good feeling that accompanies it to be impeccable with your words.
1: It takes a lot of energy to keep lying.
0: Oh, I can't even imagine what it would be like to have to keep remembering those lies.
1: Like the trail of who said to what? There's a tremendous calmness with being able to sit in the truth and go, well, that's
0: the truth of it.
1: Like, that might be uncomfortable for you, but that's the truth.
0: Yeah, and I think truthfulness has a lot to do with how you your delivery method of how you deliver it and even if it's truthful are you delivering it in a nice way or a not nice way that's another place you can delve into
1: exactly brutal honesty even if what you're saying has the frequency of accuracy to it never underestimate the power or the karma of consequence in the, in the execution right so if i say something that is honest towards you but i say it in a way that is brutal and unkind well first of all we've already the brutalness the aggression within the within the tongue is negating ahimsa right, right. so it's like well the first one's done so then it's also like how can i say this in, in a way that you can receive it it may not be comfortable it may not be what you want to hear but i'm a, i have the emotional maturity to be able to deliver it in a way that you can accept it, right? You may not agree with it, but that is not violent towards you. It has an, When we do it like this, it has an emotional perception that the, the truth is interlinked within the chakra psychology of it that allows nonviolent communication to be expressed honestly but not violently. Understanding that when you're experiencing your truth, you're actually exper- expressing your reality which can be different from the truth. Awareness is, is where humility comes in. So sitting in truth and standing in truth, if you're at a level where you actually can get to truth, that's great, but 99.999% of the time, you're actually sitting in the truth of your reality and discerning that You know, when you meet somebody and you perceive them as being unkind, that may be the truth of your reality, that their actions are unkind, but if you can see the truth as behind why they are that way, then there's a there is an acceptance, there's an understanding that comes through. It's a bigger picture. The truth has a bigger picture than just the immediate action. Do you know what
0: I mean? You lost me there. I'm still going over words in my head.
1: <laughs> That's cool. The truth truth is a big picture where you're able to see the honesty in the background understanding as to what the current action is being done or experienced, right? So if somebody walks in, say they're incredibly wealthy and they're not very kind to people, and you see them as being a bit of a... If you can see the truth of it, of understanding why they are like that, you can see the bigger picture, you can even just inquiring within yourself why are they so mean to other people and you can understand a little bit of maybe that's how they're patterning of their childhood and that's how they're coping mechanism because they're actually feeling intimidated right now and so they're in fight or flight and they only know how to get power over rather than humility when somebody is better than them at doing something then your whole demeanor on how you respond to them changes because you have inquired into the into the frequency of such a, into the frequency of truth, of understanding, not just that one isolated incident, but in the nature of their being. Do you get what I mean now?
0: Yeah, I totally get what you mean. You know, there's something powerful about seeing the truth from your reality, which might be, okay, this person's a big jerk. And then taking a step backwards and seeing the truth for a whole of why that person is the way they are, which also takes a lot of energy and a lot of mindfulness, if you will.
1: And discernment.
0: But results in a much more compassionate result.
1: Absolutely. When we're moving towards satya, the results are compassion, understanding, kindness, inquiry. When we're standing out of satya, Our results are judgment, cruelness, brutal honesty, which is all rooted out of fear on our part rather than trust. Satya.
0: Truthfulness.
1: Swami Shivananda says that Vak Siddhi, Vak, V-A-K, which means speech, that you have the power to make whatever you say into reality. And I've met people who have this... I, I have directly experienced them saying, go and do something, which in that moment seemed a little bit ludicrous and slightly far-fetched. Turning around and a month later, everything they said manifested exactly as they said it on the same day. Trippy. Totally trippy, right? But the power of VAC is where they are able to sit in the truth of it and allow their speech to give that power a little bit of oomph into manifestation. And so we have to get incredibly discerning about what we will say and what we won't say and how we will say it.
0: Yeah, how we will say it is particularly important, in my opinion.
1: Exactly. I mean, if you experience this person who, as you said, is a jerk, and then you turn around and you're like, oh my god, that person is such a jerk... Chances are that person is not going to come out of the jerk box for quite Absolutely a while. Absolutely not. Right? Absolutely. Not a chance. So, But if
0: you seek the higher truth, the truth out of your own reality and perception, then you come into that compassion. The actual truth behind their jerkiness.
1: Right? <laughs> is
0: then things that, get a lot better.
1: Hey, that person seems a bit off today. They may need some an extra dose of kindness. And then your action into allowing that person to experience a little kindness can completely shift their whole demeanor and suddenly they're not a jerk. They're a person who's going through a crisis doesn't know a better way. So then we move on to the third yama, which is asteya, right? The third yama, commonly known as honesty. Well, weren't we just talking about honesty?
0: I know, right? But I think truthfulness and honesty are similar but separate. Yeah. They they have differences.
1: Asteya is honesty and abstinence from theft connected to purifying the mind from not needing to possess one's desires, but to sit in contentment. This is not limited to the desire of things, but also the desire of others' time. And it takes a huge strength of mind to witness the desire and not go and engage and accumulate it like the chocolate in the fridge right now. Mm. Mm. <laughs> it actually does take willpower. And our society, our society is all about accumulating desires. Our entire society is made up of do you want it? How can you get it? And that is really quite scary.
0: Yeah, it can be really unnerving, it can. especially when you can't get your desires.
1: Right, and then that creates pain.
0: Yeah, totally, it creates huge conflict, inner conflict. and
1: if you can't discern that, then that creates suffering, Mm -hmm. and then you're a jerk.
0: But when you fall into the witness of, and you see, oh, oh, there's this little thing inside me that desires that, or what that person has, Mm -hmm. or I want to spend time with that person, and you witness that, and you can let it go, then.
1: Totally. I experience, I have, I mean, I experience desire for, for objects, just like any other human being. But the desire of people's time, I think, is a really interesting concept to look at in the de- especially like in terms of the developmental stages of emotional development as a child. You know, as a child, the child demands the time of the mother a lot, and it's developmentally appropriate. Right? Of
0: course.
1: But if we get stuck in that development, then often we can project those same 1-year-old, 2-year-old, 3-year-old, 4-year-old, 6-year-old patterns into 14, 15, 16, 17, 30, 35, 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, right? We never actually grow out of being the child that wants to feel the love of the mother. And we do this through manipulation of people's time and people's energy. And I think it's a really interesting concept to uh, inquire about within yourself. You know, in the ashram in India, of course, everybody wants to spend time with the master. Everybody wants to like be special, right? Everybody wants to like be (laughs) smiled at or waved at or acknowledged or, you know, sat with or have a meal with or, you know, everybody wants that. It's a natural human desire, but it gives us such a tangible experience as adults to turn it inwards rather than be a 35 year old that's running after some little indian <laughs> that can get kind of awkward you know
0: um, yeah and it's uncomfortable for yourself like
1: it's embarrassing always
0: wanting to spend time with a person
1: <laughs> it's embarrassing so i've heard very, <laughs> it can be very embarrassing so, you've
0: heard.
1: so i've heard um i i got a birthday card many years ago from my teacher That said, uh, happy birthday, Shivani. Remember, all longing is longing for the self. All desires, whether it's the chocolate in the fridge or that person's time or this job or that vacation, all longing, what you're expecting to get out of that experience is actually something that you're looking to fill with inside of yourself. And you know, in that in that terms of, you know, one plus one equals one, punamada, punamidam, this is complete, that is complete, you are complete. There's actually nothing from the outside world that can fill you. So when we see our desires to the outside world and we can acknowledge that, you know, I really wish I could have some of that person's time. Well, why? What is that person's time? How is that valuable to you? Well, they're kind. Okay, well, can you be kind to yourself? Right? They make me feel special. Well, how can you make yourself feel special? They make me feel like I'm important. Well, how do you make yourself feel important? And then go and do those things. And then when you're in that person's presence, you no longer need them. And the the connection between the two of you is much more authentic is two souls meeting each other than two souls needing each other for every positive there is a negative when we live in the world of duality right so for every aloof person there's an interrogator there's there's ne- it's never just one side when people come together so but to come in neutrality i am full you are full do you want to hang and then it's like i don't need you but I value the time we spend together because you're filling your own cup first. And it's a wonderful way to come into a marriage is really going through why you want to marry that person. What do you get from that person? And then spend six months giving that to yourself. And then if you still cherish and love that person, then marry them because you'll be marrying them for who they are, not what they can give you. Because as they evolve and as you evolve in 20 years and 30 years and 40 years, you don't want to be codependent. You want to be partners. Right? And I think it's a really in, um, important step that we forget to do in the West when we come into relationship with each other. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I agree. I'm munching over what you just said in my head.
1: So then the fourth one is brahmacharya. the smile (laughs) if you ever want to talk about brahmacharya with a man (laughs) there's always a smile because in the west it's always translated as abstinence from sexual acts and that's not the full picture of what brahmacharya means Brahma means the divine consciousness and charya means living or one who is established in so brahmacharya means one who is established in divine consciousness therefore it's not just about not getting it on so brahmacharya he's speechless <laughs> when we when we have sex you have sex for three reasons okay do you know the three reasons why you have sex
0: yeah what are they pleasure um, to make a child. The third one has something to do with divinity.
1: Right? <laughs> Minor detail. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right? Turns out to be the opposite.
1: Totally. So when you declare to be practicing brahmacharya, you want to have purified the desire to have sex only for pleasure. That's kind of the big one. I, I know people that are celibate, And in the West, that means, like, no sex. But I think a a more accurate understanding or or a little bit uh, broader understanding of it is that, especially from the left hand of Tantra, which is Varma Marga, which is everything is God, right? Having sex is God. Eating spinach is God. The chicken's poop is God. That there is nothing to be shied away from. And when you're practicing brahmacharya, that all your energy is to the divine and so you don't have sex for pleasure you have sex for divine purposes now this is nuanced and I want to make this really clear in the West okay to be able to practice tantric sex there is an initiation you don't always get to choose your partner and there is specific practices that you must be able to do it is not something you decide on a Friday night. Hey, honey, you want to go practice tantric sex? Okay, that's that's not tantric sex. That is a charlatan. That is somebody saying, hey, I want to have this experience with you for this purpose, but it's it's actually for my own ego and my own pleasure. Right? We have to get really clear. Having sex for pleasure is okay. It is, it is okay. It's not a bad thing. Having sex to have children, to procreate, is not a bad thing. Having sex to be closer to the divine, to have a divine experience is not a bad thing. But you've got to get honest, honesty, astraya, satya, truthfulness of why you are doing it and allow that to be a mutual consent on the same plane. Whereas, you know, if you say, I want to have sex for divine purposes and the other person's not initiated, they've never done it, well, don't worry, I'll teach you. They are wanting to have sex for divine purposes, but actually you're getting a lot of pleasure out of it. So then that's manipulation. That's not truthfulness. That's not honesty. And it's actually an act of violence. It kind of negates all of the yamas so far. So brahmacharya is being able to feel the desire to have sex for pleasure and turn that inwards and turn that towards the divine. And you can do that in other ways. You can do that through kirtan through chanting, through singing, you can do that through karma yoga. Energy is energy, whether it's energy for sexual purposes or energy for other purposes, it's just energy. It's how you identify with that energy. is how the action is going to play out through the body. So sex is like the ultimate desire.
0: For a lot of people, yeah.
1: For a lot of people, exactly. Depending on where they are in their evolution. Depending on what they need to work through and when somebody is able to practice brahmacharya the relationship to sex is completely different it's it's like chalk and cheese in terms of sex in the western world to practice tantric sex or to have sex from a a place of divine union is a completely different experience it's a it's 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 an austere experience it's not like a hey how you doing experience there are rituals there are practices, there are initiations that need to be adhered to so that the energy doesn't go through the channel of ego and pleasure. It's actually a very high practice to do. And so I think you know it's it's really important to have a little bit more awareness of this in the West. And just be honest with yourself. So this is the brahmacharya in a beginner's kind of stage. And then the fifth Yama, can you say it?
0: Aparigraha.
1: Aparigraha. That's awesome. It took me a long time to figure out how to say that. It's non-possessiveness, abstinence from greed. For when we take more than we need, we're effectively stealing. And theft came from Australia. We're effectively taking from someone else. So to live from a place of hoarding effectively means a lack of faith in the divine to be able to support your future. So Aparigraha is literally the foundation or practice for a yogi's evolution. We kind of have this thing, if I have it and you need it, I will give it to you. When the thought of, but I might need it next week, that is not practicing a parigraha. If I have it and you need it, I will give it to you. Because if I need it next week, the divine will give it to me. And so then the energy just keeps flowing and flowing and flowing. And when energy is flowing, it can shift frequency and to higher frequencies energy that is stagnant can't evolve right you can't go from ice which is not moving or moving extremely slowly it has to go through the tapasio or the fire to come into water and then that water has to keep heating up to come into steam it has to keep moving so hoarding or possessiveness is lowering the vibration It's holding on. It's not allowing energy to move through you, which means that you're rooted in fear, not rooted in trust. And no flower of love or right action or service or contentment or evolution is going to come out of a seed of fear. The flower resembles the seed. If you plant a sunflower, it's not going to grow a rose. If you want to have a sunflower, you have to plant a sunflower seed. So, if you want love, if you want contentment, if you want uh, companionship, if you want to be partners, if you want to be in service, if you want to evolve, you have to plant the seed of trust. And a parigraha is such a foundational experience of trusting, of giving, because in our whole society is about accumulating. It's not about giving, right? It's about power over. I have a Mercedes Benz the bum on the street is sitting there having had lunch for three days. But, you know, that's unfortunate for them because that's their karma. Right? It's like, no. You see that need. If you see that bum on the street and you have the money, you go buy them some food. You don't turn a blind eye. Because when you turn a blind eye to somebody suffering, that becomes violent again. Mm-hmm. And it just cycles back to Ahimsa. If I see that you're suffering, and I have the means to alleviate that suffering, it is not my place to judge as to why you're suffering. It doesn't matter if you're a drug addict. It doesn't matter if you are out of control. It doesn't matter if you're homeless. It doesn't matter if you are lying. It doesn't matter, because this is about my evolution, not about your evolution. I don't know your evolution. I'm not enlightened. But if I see your suffering, I see you're hungry, and I have the means to give you food then I should give you food and not worry about why are you hungry what did you do to get into the circumstance where you are now hungry is it your own fault did you do something bad are you an addict you know like why are you like that what did you screw up that's allowed yourself to be there no that's not that's not where we need to be we need to be you need shoes I have spare shoes. Here are shoes. You're hungry. I can have food. I can offer you food. It's about: Do I have it? Do you need it? And can I give it freely? Without judgment, without justifying, rectifying, uh, as Param Jodi said on I think the uh, the Why Yoga on our very first podcast, that people volunteer if they deem it worthy right? If they deem that the institution is worthy of them volunteering, you don't deem if somebody is worthy. You see a need, you feel a need. And this is a parigraha. You, I have it, you need it, I give it. I trust the divine will keep bringing abundance towards me because my abundance flows out. And that's compassion and action, that's love, that's trust, that's atmabhav, seeing all as one. That you are me. There is no separation between you and me. We are divine sparks of atma, of pure consciousness. We are not separated. You are experiencing a set of karmas. I am experiencing a set of karmas. So our realities are perceived to be different. But but who is doing the perceiving? And who is perceiving the perceiver, right? This is Pratyahara, right? Experience it. Acknowledge that you are experiencing it. Witness the experience. Perceive the witnesser of the experience. And suddenly every facet of the diamond you realize that they have a completely different take on life. They have a completely different view of the world. But the essence behind that cut, behind that to face on the diamond is part of the whole diamond. It's not separated. and it. Every cut on the diamond needs that facet to be complete, to embody beauty. Does that make sense? You look a little dazed.
0: There's a lot to take in.
1: There's a lot to take in. But that's okay. That's, what, that's why podcasts are awesome, because you can replay them.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so that is the yamas of universal morality, of how we interact with the outside world. And uh, I'm interested to hear your thoughts. If you want to send us a message on Facebook to the Living Yoga Society. If you want to make a comment on uh, the iTunes or on the um, SoundCloud. Don't forget, we have now 1 plus 1 equals 1 Purnamada t-shirts. If anybody is interested in them, you can check them out on the Living Yoga Society's uh, facebook page and if you have a question that you would like us to address in a podcast from a yogic perspective you can shoot us an email at info at livingyogasociety.org or send us a message through facebook i think the chickens just laid an egg
0: i hear the song
1: did their chickens sing before and after they lay an egg
0: it's totally strange
1: It's totally beautiful. (laughs) It's beautiful. All of the chickens start to sing to celebrate the egg that has just been laid. Well, thank you for your time.
0: Yeah, thanks for your time.
1: Maybe we can also do the the niyamish soon.
0: Yeah, we'll see.
1: Okay. (laughs) Namonarayan.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe, share it with your friends on Facebook, and... Feel free to donate a dollar at livingyogasociety.org/slash donate.